I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Have you ever wanted to make your house more sustainable? Maybe you're worried about your impact on the planet or just want to save some money on your electricity bills. Well, this episode is about making your house greener. Coming up, you're going to hear from the designer who built the beautiful Tuft house that I got to visit in Tasmania for the living room. You'll find out what it takes to build a home that's completely off the grid. The, the process of building the house needs a bit more thought, a bit more planning, and there are more things that need to be taken into consideration. But from an actual construction point of view, it's not any more difficult. It's just more things you need to be aware of and have planned for. And why not literally make your house greener by adding some indoor plants? Matt Lacey's going to pop around. If you're someone that kills every plant you ever touch, Matt is going to give you the tips and turn you into a green thumb. I can give you a plant you will not kill. What, what plant is that? Um, I, well, I, I would always turn to the spathophyllum, the peace lily. That, <laughs> I was going to say a spathophyllum. I mean, it was on the yeah. tip of my tongue. <laughs> That's coming up on Hammer at Home with Barry Dubois. Matt Lacey is a landscaper and is the director and principal designer at Land Art. Now, Matt and the team at Land Art have been designing beautiful landscapes, architectural outdoor areas and pools for about 17 years. That's why earlier this year, I invited Matt to join my renovation team at the living room. Now, I'm going to say he's a big, good-looking guy and he's settled in perfectly with me. And now he's sitting right opposite me and we're going to have a bit of a chat about indoor plants, Matty. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Baz. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> I'm really keen to talk about indoor plants. Uh, they're very popular at the moment. Before we get started on that, what was Matt Lacey thinking he was going to be when he was 12? Um, I thought I was going to be um, probably a sportsman at that, at that age um, and then I got really interested in fashion design and uh, my dad owned a um, clothes manufacturing business so I thought that's what I was going to do after school and I went and worked for him. Unfortunately, he ended up going broke so my career in fashion design kind of came to a halt so I went travelling for a while and, um, and, and started just labouring and, and, you know, I loved working with my hands and working outside and eventually it just led into landscaping. Interesting. I mean, you thought you were going to be a sportsman, so you're into fitness and fashion. Looking across the desk here at me, you must be an aura, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, I it's everything you wanted, yeah. to, wanted to be. <laughs> you're everything I wanted to be. I know. Well, uh, something that I always think about, we're both creatives, and I think about what inspired me as a young person. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about your home and what inspired you about your home. Um. And actually, I mean, my auntie always took me out in the garden and talked to me about how you design a garden, and she'd tell me about how to how to mix colours and all that sort of thing. And and at at the time, I was probably thirteen, or and I was just looking at it going, <laughs> I am not going to be working in gardens. This really? is yeah, really. Um, and then um, 
my sister um, got quite sick when I was young and we ended up having to kind of build this area for her off our house. And uh, one of my dad's mates came around and he built it for us because we, we couldn't afford to really build it. So he came around on the weekends and he gave me all these jobs that I had to do to make this thing happen. And um, it was doing that that really made me like working with my hands and getting in the outdoors and getting dirty. And I, I kind of went from, you know, what I wanted in life, uh, you know, fashion and all that sort of thing to, to just working on the tools and uh, and just really loved it. I know that your sister has special needs and yeah. has done for a long time. Uh, she's confined to a wheelchair? Yeah, so she um, she had a cerebral hemorrhage um, when, I, when I was 16 and she was 18. And, uh, and she was just a, she just finished her HSC, just a normal girl, um, beautiful young girl, uh, had the rest of her life ahead of her and um, then she had these cerebral hemorrhages and uh, yeah, she's never been able to walk or talk or do anything for herself again. So she's been wheelchair, wheelchair bound f- uh, for the last 25 years now. Um, so that was kind of this big life-changing moment in my life and um, that also kind of grounded me and, cha- and took me in a different direction as well. So... Um, you know, I'm really grateful for the inspiration she's given me, um, though I would prefer it to have come mm. in a different way. Yeah, must be mm. tough. But whose idea was it to create this space outdoors where, you, where your sister would feel comfortable? Um, I'm not really sure. Um, I was probably too too disconnected from all those decision-making ma- things that were happening with my parents at the time. Um, but she needed a, a workroom where she could... Um, do her physio and she needed a bathroom that a wheelchair could go into and all that sort of thing. So uh, the house just wasn't, we just, you know, we just kind of made a decision. She'd been in rehabilitation places for for six, eight months and um, those places are just really hard to deal with. So we made the decision to bring her home yeah. and with that came all these other challenges with fitting out the house and trying to make it work for her. Are you in the same house now? Are your parents in the same house? They're still in the same house. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very much a kind of carer's home now and we've had nurses and people in our lives for my sister for the last 25 years that have just been a blessing and so amazing and, um, yeah, we've been blessed with the people around us but yeah. at the same time it's taken a huge toll on my parents, obviously, as carers, you know. They, they, there was the time when their daughter was supposed to leave home they, mm. she became fully dependent again. Must be very difficult. Uh, I know you're a strong man and a fantastic support, your sister, so that must be great. And, and for your mum and dad to know that they can lean on you the way they do is also mm. great. What I wanted to talk about today was something different to those outdoor spaces. It was more about indoor indoor spaces and yeah. indoor plants and, yeah. and particularly for renters or transients. Yeah. Uh, why yeah. should every indoor space have plants in them? Um, well, there was a recent study, um, I think done by the CSIRO um, and I think UTS put it out um, and it said that where now the average population is spending 90% of its time indoors with work, school, um, you know, in the house and that the CSIRO have uh, valued, uh, you know, put a, a $12 billion per annum cost on the impacts from urban air pollution um, and it causes up to 2,000 deaths each year uh, in Sydney. So... You know that's that's that pretty alarming figures, aren't they? And, yeah, um, I mean they're beautiful, but the advantages are endless, really. They, they are. They and grow the oxygen. They take away the toxins. Yeah, and it's proven that they reduce symptoms of headaches, sore eyes, loss of concentration, uh, depression. Um, you know all those things. So you can't argue with that. And you know all all those all the things that you want to go outside for for a bushwalk. You know all all the times that you get back to nature to make you feel more wholesome and make mm. you feel more at one with yourself. Um, why not bring some of that inside? Because we always talk about let's take 
let's take the living spaces outside. Mm. But, you know, it's much more cost effective to just bring the, the, the garden spaces inside. And the, the trend at the moment and all the young young kids are onto it where, you know, people in young, and I've got some that work for me that are just filling their houses. They're like their units are just like jungles. They've got vines everywhere and they go to plant collectors' markets and they're just, huh? they're just not even knowing the names of what they're growing. They're just having a crack and there's just plants everywhere and it's just so cool. It's inspiring. When I'm going to buy an indoor plant, where do I start? Do I buy it in a pot and then transplant it? Should I buy undersized and expect it to grow better if it grows at home or should I buy a more mature plant? Which is the best way to go? Um, I, I think... It, you're probably better off if you, if you haven't really grown plants before. You're probably better off starting with something that's just going to survive um, without with little care because I think that's the big thing. People buy these plants that look cool on Instagram or they look cool wherever they're seeing them and they bring them home and they just die because they're just the wrong plant for the wrong space. And, <laughs> and our producers over there nodding because <laughs> she has a reputation of killing any plant on this planet. So that's great. I can give you a plant you will not what, kill. What plant is that? Um, I, well, I, I would. Always turn to the spathophyllum, the peace lily. That, <laughs> I was going to say a spathophyllum. I mean, it was on the yeah. tip of my tongue. <laughs> Seriously, spathophyllum is exactly what I was thinking. Uh, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> um, that plant is so hardy and the good thing about that plant is it just it just weeps over and falls to the ground when it needs a water. And so it's literally just saying, hey, water me, water me, and you can't walk past it and not notice that it needs a water. And it can be drooped over and looking dead. You add water to it and it pops back up and it is one of the hardiest plants you can get. And you can put it in a bathroom, a living room, you know, just don't put it in full sun and you'll have a successful plant. You've taught me something really interesting earlier this year. We we did a beautiful garden on the living room and you had uh, shade cloth over some of the bigger plants. Yep. And I was intrigued by that. And you said, well, we're coming into summer, Baz. Plants go into stress when they've been transplanted. And uh, you explained to me beautifully how you needed to protect them from the sun and, and too many extremes. Does the same thing happen when you uh, bring an indoor plant home? Do they go into any sort of stress? Um, they can do, depending on where they've been grown. Um, so, yeah, if, 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 like if, you, if you buy from a nursery a plant that um, can go in full sun, but it has been grown in a shaded area or in a shade house or a greenhouse, then if you go and put it in the full sun, it's going to kill over and probably die or definitely go through a period of shock. So you just need to make sure that you see where this plant has been grown and you know what it's coming from before you put it or expose it to elements it's not used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, that pretty much goes the same for any plant. Any plant. Yeah. It just doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take much. <laughs> no, and you get the fleshy plant, like the one that we did on the living room that yeah. we talked about. Um, that was So that, fleshy plant, that was a big so succulent, wasn't it? was like wasn't a big it? bromeliad almost, yeah, yeah. alcantaria. Um, that... And, and we talked about it on the day. If you if you hose that in the in the in the day just before the sun hits it, the sun's going to hit that like a magnifying glass, and the little the little beads of water on the leaf are just going to burn straight through it. Yeah. So you've got to be really careful when you water things if they're out in the sun as well. So indoors, you don't have as much direct sunlight, so that's no. not as a bigger issue. No, absolutely. The, the, often the problem with indoors is people overwater. They either overwater or underwater. Yeah. Um, now a lot of people say it. I've got two green thumbs and two green toes. I mean, the toes thing's more related to the athlete's foot, of course. Yeah. And I can grow anything. But for the person that struggles, what's yeah. that? What's that number one tip for making sure your indoor plant makes it? Show it love. Show just love. Just love. I mean, I mean, most most indoor plants don't need to be watered more than once a week. Like, there's not many plants indoors that need need 
every second day or every third day watering. Most can get away with once a week, some once every two, three weeks. So all you've got to do is put your finger in that pot and feel what the soil's like and most of the time you'll get a good result from that. Hmm. Um, there's things like the, fi- do you know, ficus fiddle leaf fig, the big the big leafed ficus. Um, that plant is is a really popular indoor plant but it's actually it can be really hard to grow or to keep looking good because it gets attacked by pests and if it's in the wrong spot. So mm-hmm. if you get you get the plant in the right spot with the right light and then you just keep testing the soil with your finger and watering it once a week, you'll, you'll have success. It's just making sure you get the right light. I think that's more important than anything. Is, um, you bring a plant home from Bunnings or wherever you buy your plants, it's in that little plastic container. Mm-hmm. You always take that out straight away. Is there better pots to put it in? Is there a little procedure that you go through when you're going to repot one of these plants that's come from the hardware store or the nursery? Yep. The most important thing to do is get a really good quality potting mix because mm-hmm. if you put your plant in an ordinary potting mix, like there are a lot of ordinary potting mixes on the market and once they dry out, they're pretty much gone for good. Mm-hmm. So you need something that has some organic matter in it, um, has some coconut fibre or something that's going to hold a bit of moisture but get a good quality potting mix and repot your plant into that and that is, that'll give you the good basis of a good plant. And then what, what I do with most of my plants is I, I'll water them once a week um, and then maybe once every six months, I'll take it outside, stick it in a bucket of seaweed solution and give it a good fertilise and then take it back inside. So you'll stick the whole pot into a bucket yep. of pre-mixed seaweed solution yes. and yep. that'll just seep in through the bottom and over the top. Yep. How long would you have yep. that in there for? Oh, not just long enough for it to just, just, just soak into it. immerse it, it yep. then take it out, leave it in the, in some soft sun for a, for a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. or just in the shade outside. Um yeah, and, and that, that'll, that'll feed it up and, and get it going for another six months. If, it, if it's starting to bulk out and starting to grow really well, you can always up, upsize the pot, yep. um, which is the next step as well. So if you can keep transitioning your pot as, it, as your plant as it starts to grow successfully, transition into the next pot size up, mm-hmm. that'll give it space to keep spreading its roots and growing further. One other tip I would add, um, often, when you, often when you go and you, you water, you, you go, oh, crap, I haven't watered my plant for a week and a half. And you take it to the sink and you pour the water into the pot and you notice that the water goes straight through, almost like you're pouring the water into a sieve. Yes. Often that is because your potting mix has dried out a little bit and the water's found a direct route around the plant and outside the bottom of the pot. So it's a good idea if you've got a pen or a chopstick or um, you know anything like that, even a knife, whatever, stab it into the soil mm-hmm. and create new um, paths for the water to take. And if you do that each time you water your plant, then you're getting a, a, a more even distribution of water throughout the root zone. Yeah, and no no, no worry about damaging the roots No, then. it'll be fine. What's the plant to steer away from? Uh, you know, tell me a horror story. Is there an indoor plant horror story? You know, someone's brought in an acorn nut and next minute they come back from holidays and it's covered their old living room. I mean, I, I know when I was growing up uh, there was a urban myth going around uh, with the tradies. If someone didn't pay you, what you'd do is wait till they go away, you'd hose their carpet and then you'd throw grass seeds into it. And when they come <laughs> home, the grass would be growing anywhere. It, I know that was an urban myth because yeah, I helped spread it. Yeah. But uh, mind the pun. And... Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, is there a plant that you that you could but shouldn't bring into the home? Um, I don't think there's a plant that you shouldn't bring into the home. Um, mm. I bring in a lot of things that require full sun in the garden. I bring them inside and see how they go. Mm. And I've got a few I've got a few succulents, even like a Kalanchoe tomentosum, which is this beautiful little furry leafed succulent. Beautiful. Uh, it's one of my favourites. It's got a little it's, – it's kind of an aqua colour with a rusty edge around the leaf. It's really nice. Um, it shouldn't really grow inside, but I've got a growing – 
really nicely inside and it's doing beautifully. So I think it's a bit of trial and error. And and sometimes you can have a plant in there for six months and then it starts to, you can see it start to turn and start to fade away. It, that's a good time to rotate it. Stick it back outside and bring some life back into it and bring something else in and just have a bit of a rotation going because then then you can bring in things that, that might not last it test of time inside yeah but you like the look of them and they they look good and they they you know you and of course things up like cushions yeah if you're in Fremantle in that hot sun that you get in the afternoon there and it's really yeah. dry you're up in Darwin it's tropical down in Melbourne it's freezing through the winter you've just got to adjust to your state yeah. um you just said something about one of your favorite plants Matt Lacey what's the most beautiful plant you've ever seen I honestly couldn't say there is one beautiful plant, the, the, the most beautiful plant I've ever seen. Um, I think plants take on so many different looks at different times of the year in different weather, in different light, and I can't, I, I'm so obsessed with so many of them that I couldn't give you one, I don't think. When the sun hits the garden in the afternoon, you get filtered light on, on your garden, it's pretty hard to pick a favourite out of any of them because mm. they all look so amazing. So and It's interesting because I'm not a huge fan of the indoor palm but uh, mm. we have one at our house specifically for that afternoon shadow that it yeah. casts on the walls. I mean, it's just the right time of year. It doesn't happen all year yeah. but I've taken photos of it many times of the shadow that it just throws straight across and uh, it's yeah. an unreferenced thing. It's beautiful. When do you know it's time to upgrade or uh, upsize the pot? Um, if you if you pull the, you, often you'll see it starting to get to the edge of the pot in terms of its foliage. It starts to you know look like it's outgrowing the you pot. You mean the canopy? Or yeah, the, the, yeah, the canopy. Itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, so is depending that a on what the plant, well, not not really because it depends on the plant. Uh-huh. Another way to test is just to pop the plant out of the pot, and if it's got, a, if you can see just a heap of roots wrapping around the pot, eventually it's going to choke itself. Mm-hmm. So that's the time to either. Uh, to cut off those roots and, uh, and upsize the pot yep. or cut off those roots and repot it back in its same pot. But you can't let the roots wrap around the inside of the pot or it'll just choke the plant to death. Yep. Great stuff, man, great stuff. I've loved this chat and I look forward to our next project. Thanks Thank for coming along. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Coming up... The designer of the Tuft House will tell you how to make your home more sustainable and cheaper to run. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts. Thanks to my day job on the living room, I get to see some pretty amazing homes. But when I visited the Tuft House in Kettering, Tasmania, even I was blown away. Let me set this scene for you. It's a deceptively simple looking house set on 80 hectares of bushland. It sits on a hillside with views of Bruni Island on one side and Mount Wellington on the other. 
But it's more than just a pretty house on a pretty block of land. I'll let Isaac Tyson explain why. He's the designer. Now, how would you describe the Kettering House, Isaac? So it's a um, it's a a long elongated building that's wrapped around a, a ridge top, a ridge line. Sorry, um, uh, high up on the hills above Kettering in Tassie, with a magnificent view out to the northeast. Um, it's a it's an off grid building, so all the energy for the building and the waste services for the building are all managed on site. So there's a solar system and a micro hydro system um, to power the home. Um, it's a very well insulated home with high performance glazing, which is um, windows and doors that seal very well and stop the drafts compared to your average um, Australian home. The building um, absorbs the sun's energy through the winter very effectively um, by the sun coming in through the northern facing glazing and being absorbed by the, the concrete slab on the ground that is insulated so it holds onto that heat nicely. It works a bit like a battery. And then during the cold parts of the day, uh, that heat that's absorbed by the slab is then able to be kind of slowly released over the night and maintain the internal temperatures at a much more stable level than, than would be possible with a, a more typical home that doesn't have the same level of insulation. Tell me, is it harder to build an off-the-grid house? Um, it's more complicated in the sense that you need to consider the house more as a whole system and you need to um, be more... I guess, aware of what you're going to need to run the house. So, yeah, you need to be, if you're providing your own, um, your own power generation and storage, um, there are obviously additional costs associated with that. Um, in this situation, we're also looking after our own waste products, so the grey water from the kitchen and bathrooms and then um, black water from the toilet is obviously taken care of on site. They're using a, a composting toilet system, which has a, a good ventilation system so that from a usability point of view, it's no different to any other bathroom. Um, but it means there's uh, less waste product going into or less hazardous waste product going into the environment and it's self-sufficient there. They're taking responsibility for that side of things. So the the process of building the house needs a bit more thought, a bit more planning and there are more things that need to be taken into consideration. But from a actual construction point of view, it's not any more difficult. It's just more things you need to be aware of and have planned for. Would it be true to say that it's just a matter of putting more time and consideration into the design to benefit for a lifetime? Absolutely. That's a good way of summing it up. If you, if people um, are interested in building a home for themselves and their family, um, spending time working out what their priorities are and what they want in the home um, and working with a, an architect or a designer or whoever um, they want to work with for that design and then possibly the build process and getting the home design right – um, and then building it well to a high standard so that it's it's well sealed, well insulated and is going to perform well is going to give them a building that is going to, one, be more comfortable, it's going to last a lot longer and it's going to have a lot more value in the future in terms of resale and um, general appeal for other people. There's also something to be said for designing a building that has a, a, a good argument to have a long life. If we A lot of the buildings that are built in Australia these days, particularly residential side of things, um, are really designed and built with the understanding they're probably going to be knocked down in 30 or 40 years' time. We're going to put a bulldozer through them and do something different. It's, um, in, it's really very wasteful compared to how we could be doing it if we thought a little bit more about um, the purpose of housing, the fact that we have an increasing population in Australia and we need to look after more people in that way. So if we design and build houses well that are going to have a long lifespan and be comfortable to live in, they should be able to last significantly longer than that. We should have lifespans more like other parts of the world, like Europe, where buildings can last hundreds of years, no problem, if they're well built and well looked after. If they're well designed and considered, I mean, they can be adapted as uh, decades go on. They don't have to be bulldozed down. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's um, something that is also um, 
overlooked sometimes. There's a lot of there's often a lot of value in an in an existing building that um, sometimes may be seen as easier to knock it down and start again. But if the if the um, the structure of the building is okay and the, the the fundamentals are all right, there's often a lot of value that can be reused in an existing building. So uh, sometimes it's worth a, a bit of a rethink and seeing whether you can make the most of what's there, um, adapting it and changing it to improve it, but not necessarily knocking it down completely. I know that the uh, the Tuft House or Robin and Peter's house was one of your first designs. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Tell me, did you what sort of brief did they give you? So the, the brief was very much guided by their um, desire to be as sustainable um, and as self-reliant as possible um, and working in with the site and the views that um, we're obviously the site is blessed with and trying to bring that all together to make a home that worked for them and their family. The site also um, gave us the option to use some materials, some locally derived materials that uh, was a bit uncommon. We were able to um, use timber off their own property, which was milled on site and then air-dried for the exterior cladding, the, the vertical boards outside. The stonework around the base of the plinth of the, of the exterior of the building was all from their own property and collected off the just from um, off the surface of the ground. So there's no no real erosion or mining. It was just a case of picking up the rocks that were lying on the ground, and uh, they spent a lot of time doing that and cleaning them up, ready for use. Um, some of the radiata pine um, trees that were on site that they really a, a weed from a um, from a, an environmental point of view. They're an introduced species. There were a couple of big pine trees that were, were felled and also milled, and they were used for um, elements of the framing. So we used a, a pretty impressive amount of the materials from their own property, which is unusual and was possible because they had such a remarkable place. But the principle of looking for what is around you and using uh, materials that are as local as possible is a good one for people to be aware of. The less we have to transport materials around the world, the better in terms of um, the carbon footprint and the impact we're having on, on the planet is is certainly a good thing to be aware of. You, you can't always achieve that, but it's if you're aware of the principle, you can make good choices in that direction. So you decided you were going to fell some trees and use those trees as lumber for the external cladding. Talk me through this. You did, did you look at a tree and know how many square metres of cladding you were going to get out of it? How do you come up with that estimate? How many trees were taken down? Um, I would have to check exactly. I think it was six or seven trees from memory. Um, the volume of timber in those trees, we, we were given an estimate from the sawmiller that we were working with as to how much recoverable timber would be in them. Uh, and I think that's a that's a judgment thing, but they, they were in the ballpark of what we were told. So, um, yeah, I, I think almost all of the exterior cladding was from their own property. I think they bought a little bit at the end. We were a fraction short, but almost all of it was local. Another design feature that I just was really taken by was you collected stones from around the site and used those stones to do a perimeter wall of the building. And I thought it was an aesthetic thing, but Peter pointed out that Bushfires or home fires start when a ember or or a spark comes and lands in a corner, maybe where the junction of the of the ground and the wall meet, and that's enough to set the fire. But you've surrounded this building with a rock wall. Where does that? Where did that feature come from? Is that something you've come up with, or no? It... It's it's a it's a design feature that has been used um, 
oh, in other places and other times. It's not a super uncommon thing, but it's not um, typical, I guess, currently in Australia. It certainly is one of those high-risk points where you have a horizontal surface where embers or burning leaves or gum nuts, those kind of things, can can get blown up against a building and sit against the wall. So that lower section of any vertical face is a, a bit of a high-risk area. So, again, if you have the right type of cladding, you don't need to treat that bottom area, but it was decided partially from the bushfire risk point of view and also partially from a design aesthetic that it would work nicely to have that um, local stone used as a bit of a plinth wall around the perimeter of the building to to make the feel the building feel grounded in its environment and also give us that increased protection from fire. Peter and Robin told me they, they wanted the opportunity to stay if a bushfire came because they wanted to protect their house. So they've created a bushfire bunker and they felt that... Um, when, when a bushfire comes, uh, if you've given enough setback from the forest itself, you're pretty well protected. And so those embers that are, are, that are a real problem. And by being able to stay on site as long as possible and having a very safe retreat, you can, you can protect it from the embers. And uh, I just found that fascinatingly brave, but also, again, well considered. Yeah, it was. it's one of those options that if you've got a house in a remote position like that and you have any desire to protect the house, it can be. you can find yourself in a situation where you no longer have an easy option of leaving because you've got a long, a long access road or a long driveway and it's no longer safe to leave. So um, that was a decision that they took reasonably early on that they wanted to create some sort of a fire shelter and um, they've chosen a... Uh, uh, system or a product that will give them a reasonable chance of, of surviving a fire. So it's just a small concrete box basically buried in the side of the hill with a, uh, a, an oxygen supply inside for a small amount of time so that they can um, they have somewhere to take refuge for a short period of time while the fire front passes. And uh, it's as good as we can do easily in a cost-effective way to give them a really good chance of def- defending against the fire should one come through, which at some point it, it's guaranteed to, given the, the nature of their environment. Is there a chance that uh, Robin and Peter are in a home that's off the grid, they can just run out of electricity and water? Um, I guess there's always the possibility. Um, typically, you would design a system to to cover yourself um, for, say, 95% or 98% of the year with your battery um, storage capacity. And then you'd have a, a, a generator of some kind as a backup on those rare week, weeks that might happen in the middle of winter where you get a week of, of overcast weather or... Um, your system is not producing at the level you would hope it to. And you might have the occasional day during the year where you need to switch the generator on for a few hours and top up the batteries. But um, that's a a fairly small price to pay to to be effectively self-sufficient and have no power bills once you've you've built the initial system. I mean, because those power bills these days are just going through the roof. So spending a little bit more money in the design, the consideration of the building and the cost of building it probably is, is well paid within only a couple of years. Uh, for sure, in terms of building, uh, designing and building a building that is energy efficient is um, always going to be a good thing in terms of your running costs. So that that money that's put into that process will usually be repaid in a in a short to medium time frame. It's not going to take you decades to get that that money back. Mm-hmm. Um, relative to being off the grid, if you don't need to be off the grid, it's still quite an expensive thing to do. If you have the option of connecting to the mains grid, it's still a more cost effective option. Um, definitely put as much of a solar system on the roof as you can afford because it's going to knock out your power bills and down the track as our energy system gets um, slightly cleverer you'll be able to probably sell back to the grid or sell back to your peers as the our energy system becomes more distributed but 
immediately with the cost of batteries, it's still a reasonably expensive thing to do to go off the grid if you don't have to. So it depends on your situation and where you want to build. This is amazing stuff. There's no doubt about it. But I know that there's a lot of people listening now who live in a home that they're, they're not going to do a renovation to. They're not going to change it extensively in, in the short term. What's the message to them? What can they do to reduce their energy costs and do what they can for the planet? So probably the single um, biggest and easiest thing that they can do is to think about the house like like an esky. It's the house's job is to keep you dry and comfortable. So um, if you're pumping energy into the building to keep it warm or keep it cool, and all that energy is leaking out through the holes, whether it's through drafts going in or in or around your windows and doors, or under your skirting boards, or through your floorboards, anywhere that air can get in or out, you're going to be basically heating the neighbourhood rather than your house or <laughs> cooling it, depending on which way it goes. So anything you can do to reduce those those leaks, whether it's uh, seals on your windows and doors or corking up the gaps beneath your skirting boards those kind of things to reduce how much of that airflow flows in and out is going to have a big impact Uh, and then if you've got old windows you might think about upgrading them to some double glazed windows or double glazed doors to improve that side of things looking forward into the future what do you think sustainable houses will look like they're going to be much more efficient buildings so they're going to be um they're going to use less energy to, be, to keep them comfortable. Um, they're going to have uh, greater health benefits. There's going to be less problem with people suffering from um, cold homes. So reducing um, the challenges that are posed by buildings that are not well built and not well insulated is, um, is going to improve the livability of buildings significantly. And change the landscape. What I've taken from this is that considering design is probably the most important thing, thinking about what you're going to have not just for today but for the future and then how that home will will live on the planet that we're trying to protect. I've really enjoyed the chat. Uh, I want to say thanks and, uh, and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks a lot, Barry. Really good to talk to you. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Now, if you like what you heard or you think I might come up with something better next time, hit that subscribe button. You won't miss an episode. Also, if you've got any questions, I really want to hear them. So send me an email at hammerathome at network10.com.au. Take it easy. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.